If you would please open your Bibles to Psalm 18. Psalm 18. We will come to our text later on uh, in the sermon, so just uh, keep it handy if you would. In this series on the Psalms and prayer, I've made a number of assumptions, but there's one in particular that has stood out to me and I want to focus on it today by way of review. And that is that people think that they have the right to pray any way that they want. And indeed, oftentimes our circumstances will dictate how we pray. When a split decision needs to be made. We have a case of this in Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah, who is the butler, the, the one who serves wine to the king, uh, has heard about what a terrible state Jerusalem has, is in. And he is quite saddened by this. He fasts. He prays. And then in Nehemiah chapter 2, in the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. You know, people just don't show up sad in the king's presence. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. The king said to me, What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven. And I answered the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. That split second when the king says, What do you want? Nehemiah prayed. He had already been praying days before, but in that split second... He prayed, and so the circumstances dictated how he would pray. If there's impending disaster, or if you're in the midst of disaster, and here I'm reminded of the story of Peter uh, walking on the water after Jesus has fed the 5,000. This is in Matthew 14. Um, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat was also already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got out, or got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink, and cried out, Lord, save me. Perhaps among the shortest prayers ever prayed, but certainly prayed with great passion and earnestness. Yeah, our circumstances may dictate how we pray. In times of emotional darkness, Hannah prayed to be given a child, and we hear Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Also, I think we think we can pray as we want because we know that praying the right way is not necessary for salvation. God doesn't save you because you pray nicely. Um, whether you read your prayers or they're extemporaneous, whether they are clumsy or skilled, whether they are doctrinally correct or not, this doesn't get us any favor from God. But then the third thing that strikes me is there's the reality that as Americans in this century, we have a sense that we can do as we please, and whatever we do is good enough, take it or leave it. 
So the way we pray is the way we pray. It is what it is. And who are you to question how I pray? But all of these beg the question, why do we have the book of Psalms? A book that teaches us how to pray, that trains us to pray. If, in fact, you can pray any way that you want, then, then why have the book of Psalms at all? Um, and if prayer is, in fact, a conversation, if it is answering speech, um, shouldn't we be concerned to listen? By the way, you know, I said that circumstances will dictate how we pray, but we find this in the Psalms as well. In times of disaster, in times of emotional darkness, we hear the psalmist crying out, and I think we can be trained to pray as we should in those circumstances. I want to review what we've looked at so far, or part of what we've looked at in this series, but seeing them as answering the claim that, in fact, I can pray any way that I want. I think the first thing that people would say is, I don't need the Bible in order to pray. And on some level, this is true. But then again, why do we have the book of Psalms, or why do we have the Bible for that matter? The Psalms are a part of Scripture. They have their own identity as a book. But at the same time, they are part of a larger book that is the Bible. And the only way to know the Psalms is to know, in fact, Scripture, the rest of the Bible. The Psalms don't stand by themselves. I think people wish that they would. Um, Psalm 23, a lot of people like to quote, but they don't want to have the rest of Scripture involved. Um, the book of Psalms is not a collection of scraps of paper that were put in bottles and thrown out in the ocean and they've come to us and washed up on the shore and we don't really know where they came from but they, they sound really cool and so we'll go with them. But the reality is because of the rest of scripture we know where these prayers come from. We know the country. We know the people. We know what they went through. What they hoped for. We know the darkness and the light that they experienced, the guilt and the salvation, the rebellion that they often practiced, and their obedience as well. So when we pray the Psalms, when we are trained by the book of Psalms, we are, in fact, part of a centuries, if not millennia-long experience of God's people. Um, so when you read the Bible, it isn't just the book of Psalms. It's more than that, and it's in fact, I think, more than we might even want. So we find stories, well those are good enough. We have laws that tell us how to live. Um, but then we have genealogies, all these names of people that we really can't pronounce. And we have conversations, dialogues, of which oftentimes, like with the epistles, we only get one side of the conversation. But the reality is, we learn to pray from Psalms, and Psalms is part of Scripture, and we need to know Scripture. A second objection might be, I can say what I want and how I want in prayer. And again, on some level, this is true. But we've looked at the language of prayer. Eugene Peterson, in his book on the Psalms and prayer, has mapped out three divisions of language. The first, language one, is what we learn first, when we first learn to speak. Um, in fact, one could argue even before we learn how to speak, we know language one because it is the language of relationship between a child and his or her parents. Um, and it is because of this connection that trust develops. Language two is the language of information. 
as we grow, as children grow up, they begin to be able to name things and point and say, oh, that's a flower or that's a bird. Um, in a sense, there is a moving away from the language of relationship and intimacy to more of independence. I don't need my parents to tell me what to do. I don't need their protection. I can sort of go off into the world and know what is what on my own. Um, this is the language of schools. Language three is a language of motivation because children come to see that they can, in fact, make things happen by speaking. They, I think, have learned this earlier on. Um, when they squawk, they need to be fed or changed. They know how to get things done. A toddler can throw a tantrum. Adults can too, but let's leave it with, with toddlers. Um, but with language three, you can bring about change. As adults, we tend to live in the world of language two and three. That is, of description, of making lists, and of motivation. So when it comes to prayer, oftentimes there isn't an intimacy. There isn't even a relationship, so to speak, but rather sort of a grocery list of things that we want or things that we're thankful for. And then you know, we have different teachers that tell us how to say it in the right way to get the things that you want, to motivate God to answer your prayers. Um, This is not what we find in the book of Psalms, the book that trains us to pray. The book of Psalms shows us that our prayers are part of a conversation with a father, our father. There is an intimate relationship there. He loves us. He calls us to trust him. And the psalmist time and time again tell us that they put their hope in him. Now, I think in prayer, and certainly we've done it earlier today, as we've mentioned the things that we are thankful for, one could argue that uh, prayer oftentimes is a question of list-making, of thanking God for specific things, or asking God about specific situations. But if we're not careful, that's all it is, and prayer is simply reduced to that, if there's no relationship. And language three is really that of manipulation, how to manipulate God into giving you what you want. We are much more comfortable with language two and language three. But it is language one, that of a relationship between a child and his or her parent, that we find in the book of Psalms. Objection three is, I'm the one who initiates the conversation with God. I don't think anyone claims this, um, but I think many of us act this way. We sort of rush into God's presence. We're there because there's specific things we want, or we need, or we just want to say thanks. Um, but as we've seen in this series, the book of Psalms is divided into five books. And the first five books of the Bible are known as Torah. And that there is a matching between Torah and the five books of the book of Psalms. We're not sure how the book of Psalms was put together, but certainly editors were involved. They collected these, all these prayers together. But why did they divide them into five parts? Well, it's just a guess on my part, but I think it is to protect us from the error of presumptuous prayer, thinking, oh, well, I can do whatever I want. I can pray any way that I want. The reality is we listen first. 
And if nothing else, the fact that there are five divisions in the book of Psalms should really help us remember there are five books of the law in which God spoke and said, this is how you're supposed to live. Because otherwise we think, yeah, I, I begin the conversation, I say whatever I want. And the psalmist, all of them want us to know that this is simply not the case. The fourth objection that people might say is, my prayer doesn't have to deal with my life events. Um, some might think that the less we say about ourselves in prayer, the better. But consider one aspect of prayer, and that is thanksgiving. Doesn't that have to be connected to our lives? Aren't we thanking God for something that has happened in our lives? Um, and what we've seen in this series is the place of story, that all prayer is prayed in the context of a story, someone who is in a story. There should be no storyless prayers. Peterson, in his book, argues that story is to prayer what the body is to the soul. That is, the circumstances in which we find ourselves are really important as we pray to God. The part of the story of my life that I'm in right now is important. I, I just don't remove myself out of the context and then begin to pray. A body without a soul is a corpse, and so is a prayer without a story. And that's why after the first two psalms that tell us, they prepare us how to pray, the first one we have is a familiar story to the Jews where David has been overthrown by his son Absalom. He's on the run for his life. And in that context, he prays. The story is very important. That's why if you look at the beginning of many psalms, only 34 do not have titles. They give us titles. And oftentimes they connect us with a particular narrative. So we can, oh, okay, when this was going on, this is what the psalmist prayed. Our prayers are not to be a form of escape. They are to be something that is prayed within a particular context as things are going on in our lives. One could argue that the story is exterior. It's what people can see. It's the plot, if you wish. Prayer is the inner life. It's the part that other people can't see. There is, and we've talked about this, there's a kind of storytelling that only deals with the manipulation of plot. You know, this person did this to this person. And then you have action, you have all these different things, but what they're thinking, what they're feeling, it's really not that important. But the reality is, who we are inside is important. And this is found in prayer. One more objection, and then we'll get to Psalm 18. This is, I can pray when I want and where I want. And again, there is some truth to this. But I think such a view will lead to a less than consistent prayer life. Last week, we looked at the matter of rhythm and prayer. Whether we realize it or not, we live rhythmically. Think of how you breathe and your pulse. Think of the phases of the moon and the seasons. There are rhythms. Usually when it comes to speaking rhythmically, we think of poetry. And interestingly enough, the Psalms are in fact written in the form of poetry. But in the way that breathing is rhythmic, we inhale and we exhale, and prayer is answering speech, we inhale as God speaks to us, and then we exhale in prayer. Um, we breathe pretty rhythmically. I think if we breathe the way that we prayed, 
many of us would be unconscious because we would lose oxygen. Because we're like, well, I'll pray whenever I want to. Instead of having this, this, this sense of rhythm. And we saw this when we went through it, of creation of evening and morning. Evening and morning. And after the third psalm, which is a, a psalm of story, we come to Psalm 4, which is the evening prayer, and Psalm 5, which is the morning prayer. All of us need to sleep. It's a biological necessity. But if we are God's people, it should also be an act of faith. Because the reality is we want to stay in control. And we want to make sure that everything's going on. But when you go to sleep at night, you are no longer in control. And more than simply saying, well, I'm not in control, control is given to God. To say, I know, in fact, you are taking care of things. Psalm 4 begins rather noisily. Answer me when I call to you, O my righteous God. It's time to go to bed and your, your brain is just bombarded with all the things that you did that day, that you didn't get done, and all these different things. But if you look at the end of Psalm 4, I will lie down and sleep in peace, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. At the end of the day, you can go to bed and say, it's your world. When we wake up, we find this in Psalm 5, and open our eyes, like it or not, the day's half over, evening and morning. The evening part has passed, and now it is morning. God has been working. We open our eyes to see what, in fact, he has been doing, what he has brought out of the darkness. And we are to answer God, the God who said, let there be light, the God who created us. So, yeah, you can pray whenever you want, but I would suggest to you that there is a place for rhythm, for consistency, as there is in breathing. Today I want to deal with another objection as we look at Psalm 18, and that is, I can use whatever language I want when I pray. Um, I don't necessarily disagree, but I would ask you the question I've been asking throughout the sermon, why do we have the book of Psalms? I mean, why have them if, in fact, they are not to train us in how we are to pray and, in particular, in the language we are to use, specifically in the use of metaphor, the metaphors found in creation. We need to begin where the Bible begins with the reality that everything is created and everything carries within itself its form and texture, the signature of the Creator. There is no part of the created world, the material world, that is unconnected with God. And as God's people, we cannot live our lives, or we should not live our lives, apart from matter. The things that we can see, that we can feel, that we can taste and smell and listen to. These things didn't simply happen along. God created them. And so no part of creation can be bypassed saying, well, I want to have a close relationship with God, but get these things out of the way. Um, Somehow there are those who imagine that these are actually things created by Satan to trip us up. Um, We want to pray to God, but instead creation gets in the way, and, and in that sense it becomes lowercase c creation that we imagine somehow Satan has brought about. The reality is creation is where God meets with us. He speaks to us while we are in creation and we respond to him as well. 
for the use the rest of the sermon, I will say that creation is the theater. It is the theater where prayer is to take place. Now, it is true that everything isn't wonderful in the world. Um, and yet, for some reason, we focus on this. I mean, there are many wonderful things and beautiful things. And we focus, I think, more on the negative. Um, for example, ten, our parasites make up 10% of the living creatures on this planet. 10%. Uh, Anne Dillard has called them uh, the devil's tithe. But there are hallelujahs. And there is groaning. So in creation, it isn't one or the other, it's, it's both and, but it is in the theater of creation that we are to pray to God. So creation is a theater in which we can behold the glory of God. It isn't, as Peterson puts it, a junkyard of cosmic garbage in which we are bag ladies sorting through the debris, picking out items on which to survive. See, all the Psalms were prayed in this theater, the theater of creation. They pray breathless in awe, laughing and crying, puzzled and dismayed, complaining and believing. And what we find in the psalmist, Peterson tells us, is they don't walk out of the theater because they want to pray. They don't say, I live in creation, but excuse me, I'm going to now go talk to God in prayer, so I need to leave creation, I need to leave this theater. There is, in fact, no prayer, no real prayer, outside the theater of creation. Otherwise, if that's how we view prayer, then it simply becomes sentimental or perhaps mystic. And we find this among many of the mystics and even a pious elitism. The purpose of prayer is not to take us out of this world. Okay? It isn't to take us from the things God created, the material, the tangible things, and then move us to this, this ethereal reality of spirituality. We are not angels. We are not going to be angels. You will remember that the Word became flesh. The Word did not become an idea, a moral aspiration, a feeling. The Word became flesh and pitched His tent among us. And He changed water into wine. He didn't say, let's get, let's get rid of these these." these material things and let's let's have this wonderful relationship with God apart from them things matter the created world matters and the physical is holy as we heard last sunday god spoke a world of matter into being sun moon stars vegetation fish birds living creatures and even human beings interestingly enough he did not speak a world into being of love and virtue, faith and salvation, hope and judgment. These would come later. But God created a tangible reality we call creation. Peterson writes, the opening lines of Genesis sound more like minutes copied out in a physics laboratory than in a prayer meeting. In the Psalms, prayer and physics occupy the same space. What we find in the Psalms, and we will look at one Psalm here today, Psalm 18, the dominant wording is metaphor. It's a testimony regarding language that spirit and matter, in fact, can, in fact, 
exist together, and they are in fact together. They should be. Metaphor uses the language of sense experience to tell us about other things like faith and guilt and mind and God. The visible and the invisible were ripped apart by sin, but now they are joined together by metaphor as we pray. So the psalmists pray, they call up images of lions and snares and dirt to talk about sin. They speak of sun and shade and king to address God. And they talk of tree and mountain and lamb to designate lives blessed by God. There is not a single psalm without its metaphor or metaphors. Metaphor is the characteristic language of the book of Psalms and thus of prayer. Psalm 18 is a wonderful example of this reality. In this psalm, David sort of sums up his life. Um, it's also found, interestingly enough, in 2 Samuel 22. And if you look at 2 Samuel 23, it says these are the last words of David. And then it goes on to tell us more about him. If you look at the title of Psalm 18, uh, for the director of music, of David the servant of the Lord, he sang to the Lord the words of this song when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And what does David say to God? He said, I love you, O Lord, my strength. And notice how God is addressed here in the first uh, verses 2 and 3. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call to the Lord who is worthy of praise, and I am saved from my enemies. God is addressed as strength, as rock, as fortress, as deliverer, uh, refuge, shield, Horn, by the way, the NIV feels it necessary to tell us this is symbolic of strength. I think the other metaphors are sort of there as well. And stronghold. This is then followed by a description of personal trouble. Verses 4 and 5. The cords of death entangled me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave or sheol coiled around me. The snares of death confronted me. David cries out to the Lord. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I cried to my God for help. From his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came before him into his ears. And God responds. Look, if you would, beginning in verse 7. The earth trembled and quaked, and the foundations of the mountain shook. They trembled because he was angry. Smoke rose from his nostrils. Consuming fire came from his mouth. Burning coals blazed out of it. He parted the heavens and came down. Dark clouds were under his feet. He mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, the dark rain clouds of the sky. Out of the brightness of his presence, clouds advanced with hailstones and bolts of lightning. The Lord thundered from heaven. The voice of the Most High resounded. He shot his arrows and scattered the enemies. Great bolts of lightning routed them. The valleys of the sea were exposed and the fountain, uh, foundations of the earth laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of breath from your nostrils. Metaphors of fierceness, which quickly give way to that of rescue, verses 16 through 19. He reached down from on high 
and took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my disaster, but the Lord was my support. He brought me into a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Later in the psalm, in verse 29, um, in the ESV it says, And by my God I can leap over a wall. There's so much in this psalm. It's a long one and there's a lot in it. But what I hope in just these few minutes that I've shown you is I've demonstrated the prominence of metaphor in prayer. You know, prayer is not something that is to be abstract, some type of spirituality, but it is rooted in the reality that we live in the theater of creation. This is where the conversation takes place. Whether we use the metaphor of weather, of geography, they in fact can express honest, spiritual, actual experience. What the rhythms of language are to time, the metaphors of language are to place. And God speaks to us in time and place. Rhythm and metaphor. Therefore, we must answer in prayer in time and space. The rhythms of language are used by the psalmist to develop the cadences of Genesis. Evening and morning. Evening and morning. And the metaphors of language are used by the psalmist to ground our prayers in the Genesis earth. I think many people would rather ignore the first 11 chapters of Genesis, if not the whole book itself. But it is the psalmist. I mean, the psalmist wants us to know this is where we get the rhythm. This is where the theater, this is where we pray. And this is the God that we pray to. But many people choose not to pray in this place, the creation theater. It's not that they don't know how, it's that they stay away on principle. They suggest that it's immoral. They tell their friends, stay away from it. A convenient label for such people is Gnostic, G-N-O-S-T-I-C. They wouldn't call themselves such. And it's more of a tendency, I think, than it is a particular theology, even though there is a a Gnostic theology. Um, I think that at times in our lives we may say, I want to pursue a relationship with God, I want to have a deeper relationship with God, and slowly but surely we may not even realize that we sort of drift out of the theater of creation. We imagine that it's this world that's holding us back, and if we could just somehow escape and be in this special place with God, then we could have this wonderful relationship. The concern becomes with the inner life, and outer reality becomes insignificant. There are two elements of Gnosticism that really influence the life of prayer. The first is a contempt for the material world. And the second is a craving. Um, I've chosen the word craving. Uh, Peterson uses the word lusting for the secretive. Gnostics despise matter. They may not say so in so many words, but they see matter as inconvenient. That in fact the created thing, the things you can touch are what get you in trouble. I want to contemplate pure beauty and truth and goodness, but the world keeps getting in the way. If there weren't things, then I wouldn't covet. If there was no flesh, there wouldn't be gluttony or fornication. 
In the early centuries of the church, when the Gnostics began to emerge, um, they believed that God did not create the world. They were convinced that a lower deity created the world. Some inferior deity, and we know he's inferior because he created the material world. God would never do that. God is light. And so this, this we'd even call him evil, but sort of this sub-deity created the world, and now here we are, we're stuck here, and we need to somehow escape materiality. Well, if you read Genesis 1, God created the world. That seems to be pretty clear. But there's also just the factness of life, that the amount of time it takes to do your daily chores, cooking meals, washing dishes, doing laundry, taking out the trash, doing yard work, couldn't I better spend that time in contemplation, in appreciating beauty, in cultivating feelings of goodness, and just loving the universe? There is a desire to say that the world, the created order, is in fact evil. And Gnostics delight in secrecy. Gnostic means the one who knows. And they knew what other people didn't know, or at least that's what they would have you believe. They have teachers who know the secrets. Such people as Gnostics, and I think we all have Gnostic tendencies in us, want to boycott the theater of creation. We don't want to go in. We don't want to pray to God in creation. We feel that that holds us back. And if we were to follow the psalmist, if we were to read them, and all their metaphors that come from the created order, it's a real problem. So the the Gnostic would rather not look at the book of Psalms, because it certainly speaks too much of this world as though it's important. But if we are going to learn how to pray, being trained by the book of Psalms, then we will use language that is inescapably material, that speaks of hailstones and bolts, of deep waters, and much, much more. When we use words like rock and light and fortress, we use ordinary words. There's no chance of pretense that these these are deep theological words. These are things that a five-year-old child understands. And by using everyday language, we are not isolated, but we find that when we are in the theater of creation, we're sitting next to a friend, a brother, a sister, and we are praying together. By the way, if you say to God, you are my rock, you are unlikely to ever look at a rock the same way again. Because now it means something. Now there is a danger, and let's, let's be honest, the danger of idolatry. It is worth remembering that though the psalmist called God a rock, they never set up a rock and said, this is God. Okay? And they called God the good shepherd, or shepherd. But they never made a shepherd, a, a statue of a shepherd that they could worship and say, this, this represents God. Um, the Hebrews were very insistent that creation was holy, that matter was holy. And God was not matter, but God was holy. 
The fact that creation is holy is not inconsistent with the fact that God, in fact, is also holy, though he is not matter. He is other. They knew by commandment and through the practice of prayer the difference between a metaphor and an idol. An idol reduces and confuses, and a metaphor expands and connects. It is in Psalm 18, for example, that we come to see God as a shield and a horn, a rock and a refuge. There are at least two practices in the tradition of praying. One is that your eyes should be shut while you pray and kept that way. The other is that you should pray with your eyes open. I must confess, I guess out of years of tradition in my own life, that I tend to pray with my eyes closed. Um, At least for me it seems wise. It seems that I will be less distracted by movement or something else. But I need to be careful that I don't close my eyes physically as well as figuratively, that I close my eyes to the beauty of God's creation and what God has done. Some people close their eyes because they want to shut out the world. They want the world to have nothing to do with their prayers. Well, that's not the way it's supposed to be. David wants to praise God for what he has done, but he also wants to thank God for delivering him out of his many troubles. He doesn't want to say, I, I, don't want to, I don't want to think about these things. I'm near the end of my life. I don't want to talk, I don't want to talk about all the troubles I've had before. No, that's, that's part of who he was. And living when he did and where he did, David teaches us how to pray. That God is the creator. We are God's creatures. We live in creation. And the language we use should be that of creation as well. And if we don't, then we're, it's a real possibility, a real danger that we will sort of drift off into this imagined ethereal state. And it may in fact be very emotionally satisfying. Um, I don't think it's, it's a conversation going on. I don't think you're talking to God. Again, I will say, as badly as we pray, that's, God still hears us. Okay, We don't gain favor by praying nicely. But the Psalms are here in the Bible to teach us, to train us how to pray. Let's go to school. Let's learn from them. And let's pray as we should. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the creation that we are a part of the theater in which we are to talk to you. And our language should be that of creation, both when we think of the wonderful things you have done and when we think of the terrible things that have happened to us or to others, that we can give thanksgiving in the context of creation and we can ask for things in that same context. We are stubborn. We're children. We like to do things our own way. But I thank you that you've not left us alone. You've given us scripture, and particularly the book of Psalms, to train us. That we might, in rhythm 
and in metaphor engage in conversation, a conversation that you began. You continue to speak if we would but listen. Teach us how to pray, to be engaged in conversation with you. I thank you for this beautiful day. This day on which you've called us to come to worship. I ask that you would watch over us in the coming days. We pray for Ruth as she prepares to travel, for Tom as he comes back, for Dan and Lonnie as they'll be traveling. For each one of us, you would guide us. May we have a sense of your presence as we look at your creation. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.